We have two more meditative absorptions, jhanas. So in order to have the complete progression, I'll explain the last two, seven and eight. All of them have a number. I'm not making up these numbers. They are numbered like that in the Buddha's discourses and in the commentaries. And they also have names. They are each given a name. And particularly the higher jhanas all have a name. So the first one of the higher ones was the um, infinity of space. The next one, the infinity of consciousness. And then we have this number seven, the base of nothingness. Well, since it's a base of nothingness, one can assume that there's nothing to be said about it. And that's exactly what the Buddha does. He doesn't say a thing about it. He <laughs> just says it's the seventh one after the sixth and before the eighth. Um, one can say something about it though, and the interesting aspect of that is, and this has been a quite um, um, debate amongst the scholars who translate these uh, things from the Pali and also from Sanskrit, whether those explanations uh, are lost or whether they were never given. And then the assumption has taken place amongst scholars that are debating that, that the explanations might never have been given because it was a practice which was quite common in those days. The meditative absorptions, the jhanas, did not start with the Buddha. They were practiced in India and we have records on, of them in the Rig Vedas which are 5,000 years old, 2,500 years older than the Buddha's teaching. So that assumption has also been put forward that the explanations are so minute and sometimes not at all existing, either because they got lost, which is quite possible, or because everybody knew what to do anyway. Either way, we need explanations. We have actually, my teacher has said to me, uh, this is becoming a lost art and um, because it is not only an art but also a training it's very po uh, important that we have access to it and we do we have access to it every human mind has access to it but when we have the explanations for them the access becomes a little easier so we have the base of nothingness we can also see the infinity of nothingness, but it's usually called the base of nothingness. And it is again the effect of a cause. Now I explained to you that when you have in the fifth jhana the experience of the infinity of space, the sixth one is um, the effect of that because only the infinity of consciousness can be aware of the infinity of space. A consciousness which is concerned with uh, looking at a clock can obviously not be concerned with an infinity of space. It's that obvious. So we have cause and effect. 
where cause and effect continues. Having been absorbed in the infinity of space and the infinity of consciousness, the mind recognizes and realizes within that vastness that there is absolutely nothing of any stationary nature. In fact, it has two possibilities of recognition. And the recognition is not an optical seeing, it's not an intellectual understanding, it is a recognition within. As I presented to you, it has to become, of course, information which is strictly from the mental aspect, but the experience of it is not a mental experience, it is an inner recognition, an inner seeing, an in-seeing. So what the mind sees or what the um, awareness or consciousness becomes aware of, one could say better, is the fact that there is either absolutely nothing. Within that infinity of space and consciousness, nothing can be found. There's just infinity. And I said this already yesterday, and I'll uh, repeat that now, that there comes the idea from that experience, comes the idea and the manifold ideas of God, infinity, all-knowing, all-being, all these ideas come from such an experience. And if they are experienced by what are usually called the mystics, it depends entirely what religion or what tradition they belong to. And whatever the tradition or whatever religion they belong to, that's what they start explaining what they have experienced there. So within this vast, infinite awareness, there is absolutely nothing of any measure of anything that can be hung on to, clung to, described, explained, nothing. There is nothing. Now the word nothing and the word empty are often bandied about and if they are, the person that does hasn't got a clue what they're talking about. The emptiness is that nothingness. But what is that emptiness? Most people that use the words in an offhand manner and that's done by people who sort of skirt the edges of practice, and there are many, many of those that skirt the edges of practice. And they use those words because they hear them, and they sound like something really interesting. Isn't it nice? Everything's empty. Well, how come there's so much stuff around if everything is empty? I mean, how does the one uh, relate to the other? I mean, there's so many people sitting there, so much stuff all over the place. How come it's empty? Well, first of all, the experience of nothingness in that vast infinity is the experience of emptiness. There's nothing there. But again, caution, that does not mean enlightenment. 
So please do not think, aha, all I have to do is do that and then I know everything. Nothing, absolutely nothing, because there's nothing there to be known. But the emptiness aspect, the word empty, does not really concern that. Otherwise it would be called the base of emptiness, but it isn't. It's called the base of nothingness. Empty means something entirely different. Empty means this. If you come into this hall, you see cushions and uh, lamps and wood and uh, chairs and all sorts of things. And a shrine and a uh, uh, wooden shrine and a uh, Buddha statue and candles and all sorts of things. Right? So this place is by no means empty. So then somebody comes and gets everything out, moves everything out, everything. And then you come in here and then you see that there's nothing in it. Absolutely nothing. So at that time, the word nothing and empty are the same thing. Right? The place is empty, so there's nothing in it. But at other times, the word empty means something entirely different in this terminology. And I will explain that to you at this point, because it's a very important point. And if you can see the difference, it will help you to gain the necessary insight for those steps. The word emptiness at other times means, although there are all these phenomena, and obviously there are people sitting here, would be absolutely foolish to say they aren't. I mean, they are sitting here, you know very well you're sitting here, and I know I'm sitting here. So, while there are people, while there are things, while there is nature, but their essence is not what we think it is. We think that each bit <clears throat> particularly people, huh? it's the most interesting aspect, isn't it, people? People watching is a popular hobby. So, people, that we think that every person, particularly the one that's called me, has something in it of solidity. There is an essence. There is something that we might give some name, but the m most common name we give it is me or I. That's not there. That's a fantasy. That's a mind-made construct that has, no that has no absolute value. It's only relative. And that's emptiness. That's what the word emptiness means. And that emptiness goes, refers to all manifestations. They're there, but they're empty of essence. So here the word empty and nothing do not mean the same thing. And the word empty can be called anatta, non-self, which is also misleading because it seems to refer only to people, but refers to everything. And so it is very often said that the word sunyata is more encompassing but actually it means exactly the same thing. And that means empty of essence. So empty and nothing are not always the same thing. Here we are concerned not with the empty of essence, because we don't experience that in the seventh jhana, but we are concerned with the fact that there's absolutely nothing, like in an empty room, nothing to be found. 
So we are not talking about empty of essence here, we are talking about nothing to be found. Now because, and this is a very important aspect of this practice, because one has been able to go through all the steps of jhana, starting with delightful feeling, joy, contentment, stillness, then the infinity of space and consciousness. And the mind has had great joy, great peace. It can, without a shadow of a doubt, accept the fact that there's nothing to be found in wherever the mind would like to look. And this is what I was referring to last night, and I like to make reference to what I was talking about last night because it absolutely fits together, and it is at the same point of practice. If without these experiences that the mind has an elevated consciousness, which the jhanas are, it's an elevated consciousness, third dimension, if without these experiences it is, actually seen that there's nothing anywhere in the universe that one can hang on to because it's all dissolving and falling apart and the mind has not had this cushion that's when the panic arises that's why I explained last night that that is a point where panic, fear can arise but not if it is seen as a personal experience in the seventh jhana which is totally peaceful it's absolutely peaceful in that seventh jhana if it isn't peaceful we don't get there it's the mind has to be totally calm to experience it it has to have absolutely no rejection or resistance it must be without any viewpoint or opinion because otherwise you can't experience it. It's obvious, isn't it? When there are viewpoints and opinions, then we experience viewpoints and opinions. If we have resistance or hopes or plans, that's what we experience. But in order to experience something entirely different, all that has to be chucked out. So the mind, in its very calm and completely equanimous state, experiencing the fact, that there's nothing anywhere that can be hung on to because there is nothing except that without even a quiver that's the way it is it's seeing it in seeing it and from that experience then the insights which I mentioned last night and which I will repeat now are a matter of course what else could there be? For a person who has experienced the seventh jhana as a sort of foundation, a springboard for insight, and that's what the jhanas are for. They're for insight. Especially five, six, and seven. They are the inside jhanas. Would see the dissolution of whatever there is, thought, sensation, feeling, emotion, the body, the breath, the consciousness watching the breath, would see that as a completely obvious result of what one has seen in the seventh jhana. The two fit together perfectly. And because of that, there's no fear, no panic. One doesn't have any 
worry about it, it just is. Without it, it can be something that one rejects out of hand. Now I explained already last night that if that panic, that fear arises, that's when the teacher is needed in order to soothe the excitement and, uh, the, and point out that this is actually a relief. If there is nothing that we need to get attached to, because it just isn't there, there if there is nothing that we have to become, if there is nothing that we have to be, because we already are, if there is nothing that has any significance, and that's what happens in the seventh jhana, nothing of significance, nothing there, it's a great relief. A burden falls off one's shoulder. One doesn't have to grasp at things, at people, at ideas, at teachers, at hopes, at plans, at uh, partners, at children. They're all there. They're all there. But one doesn't have to grasp at them because they're just there. They don't have any of that enormous significance anymore that one used to put into certain aspects. Now maybe one thought children are very important or partners are very important or good weather is very important or whatever it is that one thought was so very important. All of it is there, but it doesn't have that innermost significance because one has seen a totally different view. And having seen this totally different view, it is as if one can go through the experiences in life with, well, I sometimes use the simile of a cushion, but now I would like to use the simile as if all the hinges and all the tracks have been oiled. It's like oil has been poured on everything and it's very smooth. But it doesn't become that by wishing it to be, by trying to just lay back and say, oh yes, nothing's important. I've known that all the time. That doesn't work. Something, something, that, all of a sudden something does become important. And all of a sudden it doesn't fit anymore. It's got to be the personal experience in order to make that happen. And it makes it happen because these experiences have an enormous impact on the psyche because it's a totally different world view from the one we've had so far and it's not imagination and it's not intellect it's not, it's not abstract thinking it's not rational thinking it's not sense contact it's going into another dimension and that dimension has nothing in it that could be harmful ever because there's nothing in it that's separate from oneself. So if we are that, how can it be harmful? If we are that, we wouldn't use one part of it to harm the other. I wouldn't use my hand to harm the other hand, would I? So it would be foolishness. I mean, it just doesn't happen. The psyche doesn't work that way. So if we are all that, and that's what we are, then nothing could ever harm one. 
and that is another aspect of those experiences a great lessening of fear because it has again the totality in it which is especially strong in five six and seven the totality universality it's a lessening of fear the total elimination of fear come only through past moments past moments I will explain later I would like to refer back once more to what I was explaining last night Well, you can, the emptiness of essence is where the word is used in its um, full meaning. But when we say that there is nothing, we could at the same time say that it's empty. But it doesn't mean the same thing. It's the same word, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Both. Both. Nothing and empty. That's, that's where it comes from. That's where all this confusion with empty and nothing comes from. If you have nothing in this hall, it's empty. But that doesn't mean it's empty of essence. Empty of essence is where the words anatta and sunyata come in, and they have nothing to do with the seventh jhana. The seventh jhana is the base of nothingness. Maybe I shouldn't have explained it. Maybe I would have made it easier, huh? <laughs> It's, a, it's an important point only for those people who have had um, contact with Buddhist teachings of different traditions and obviously get totally confused. Therefore, them it's a very important point. For anyone who hasn't had that contact, it says nothing to be confused about because nothingness is nothingness. So, as we go back to the connection to what happened to what happens to us through insight we can again have another look at the fact that the four parts of mind which are our second dimension and which we consider to be us gets complete that consideration gets completely shaken and luckily so when we experience not only the infinity of consciousness but also the nothingness within that infinity so the four parts of mind which I talked about last night that they need to be a meditation subject and the calm and the insight need to go hand in hand side by side and I've tried to under in every um, on every step of the way to show you the correlation between the two so that you know what the one will do for the other and it's mostly the jhanas which make it possible to see the insight more clearly, easier and without rejection but even when the insight arises first the jhana confirms it so the insights which we have through 
meditating, using as a meditation subject the four parts of mind, sense consciousness, feeling, labeling, and then the mental formation, the reaction, which we consider ourselves to be, that's me. Having seen that, there is nothing that is of any solidity in the whole of the universe, that there is nothing that can be hung on to, it is much easier to let go of this ownership of those four. Now I already explained last night that if you look at one of them, the sense consciousness, you already have <coughs> six different ones or as a seventh none at all. So there must be seven different me's there. As far as feeling is concerned, there are three different ones. And then of course labeling, there are thousands, naming. And then the mental formation, the reactions are probably, one could easily say, millions. So as we own all those, there are millions of me's. And then we need to pick out which one we would like to be at any given moment. Well, the least one can say to that is, I must be a different me every moment. And if that is so, one comes to that moment where one sees quite clearly that if I'm a different me every moment, the one before has dissolved. And now this one's dissolving and again dissolving. And we see the dissolution on a, on a, quite a, on a level which is quite understandable because it makes not only does it refer to the experience in the seventh jhana, but makes perfect sense. And as we see this dissolution happening, in the case of it works the way I've explained it, there's no fear. It's enormous relief. If this me is constantly falling apart, so what am I so worried about? That the me is not going to get what it wants? Well, that's going to fall apart too. So why am I worried about anything? It's all falling apart. Every feeling, every naming, every perception, perceiving it, every reaction. And then we have the understanding of, in addition to the experience of the seventh jhana, we also have the understanding of that nothingness. Because the nothingness is also can be quite uh, correctly uh, be explained as no significance. And that is the door through which one can go to the to liberation when one takes impermanence as one's um, topic of investigation. It's called the signless liberation. No signs everywhere. Nothing. Nothing there. But I want you to understand quite clearly, and I hope you will, that the experience of the seventh jhana is not signless liberation. It's only the indication that this can be done. It's still got to be done. The jhanas are not liberation. The jhanas are all the signposts 
And with the signpost, the third dimension of our mental ability. So with those at our command, the liberation becomes a much more possible step. So the, the, the non-significance, the insignificance, nothing significant, refers actually to this possibility of signless liberation, which means impermanence. It doesn't matter which one of those three one really takes in hand. They all lead eventually, hopefully, to liberation. That's where they're supposed to lead to anyway. Our other matter of inquiry, which I mentioned last night, was the fact that one sees, after having overcome the fear, which in this case wouldn't arise, one sees danger everywhere. Now obviously, the minute we put something important into this vast universe, that important thing will keep us bound. We're stuck to it. And all of a sudden, we no longer have the freedom of the recognition of the vastness which doesn't contain anything, but we now have the fetter again of being attached. Now that's one danger, which is quite clearly seen through that experience of the seventh jhana. The other dangers are more on the level of our mental ability, the danger of making bad karma, the danger of falling into temptation through the senses. And all these dangers which are seen as taking one off the path become far more dangerous if one has experienced these higher jhanas because the experience makes the mind light, buoyant, totally removed from these worries and problems which still exist in the world and still exist in one's life but they do not have significance. So having had the experience of being removed, the danger of being back in it is much more apparent. So the danger is the next step on the inside. The um, Seeing the three characteristics, one of the three, and in this case we're looking at impermanence more than at anything else, because the nothingness which we experience in the seventh jhana also can at times, and it has those two possibilities, at times have an effect of the experience of constant movement within that nothingness, which is just as valid an experience as the non-movement. Constant movement within that nothingness, because everything in the universe is constantly moving. So this particular aspect of the steps of practice mostly goes to the impermanence. So when we have had this experience, it will be much easier again to arouse the 
recognition of impermanence all the time what I'm calling speaking the Dhamma language to oneself all the time impermanence is everywhere and not just when something dies or someone dies and not just when we put our mind on it we are every one of us are proclaiming impermanence we are impermanence we don't have to just take a good look and eventually become aware of maybe a few gray hair or a fallen out tooth nothing like it we are impermanence because everything is constantly falling apart so having seen within the seventh jhana also this constant movement the impermanence becomes so much clearer that the mind is not so likely to forget and therefore not so likely to cling to that which it thinks it's going to make it happy but which is just as impermanent as everything else so here impermanence takes on a different aspect it's not no longer that we lose what we've got or that we get older or that we eventually die that's still on the level of our mental perception it takes on the aspect of constant movement everywhere because we've seen that in the seventh jhana constant movement and we can no longer ignore impermanence it's all moving and because of that the depths of the insight into impermanence becomes far more profound it no longer refers to those things that we know that are impermanent when a sweater has holes in it so we throw it away uh, um, a leaf has fallen down because it's died nothing like that everything has that movement in it and having seen it in the infinity of all that exists we can't deny it and the mind doesn't want to deny it it has no intention of denying it it only denies as long as it's stuck to something else here it had to be unstuck in order to get there so having got there it doesn't deny anything it has had its own personal experience of it it was totally calm buoyant at ease so what is there to deny just that is the way it is in fact again because of that constant movement which refers to the word impermanence but has this far more profound depth to it because of that relief is again experienced we don't have to make anything solid we don't have to make it perfect we don't have to make it so that other generations can follow it we don't have to make anything of any nature other than what it is already because everything is as it is anyway and that's why this step as I said yesterday is called in its totality the step of insight is called the knowledge and vision of things as they really are and that can be on any level it can be on the mental level of understanding but when it comes to this level of experiential understanding it of course has a far greater impact 
So knowledge and vision of things as they really are contains the whole of the insight that we gain at this time, which has started out with mind and body being two, everything that arises has to cease, that everything that uh, exists has a cause, cause and effect, that the that we choose impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or the uh, substancelessness as our topic of inquiry, and we don't have to retain one, we can change it also at another time, take the other topic. And following on from that, that our four components of mind are seen in their reality as having no owner, just coming and going. Now, if we get to that point where we at least understand that it has no owner, because we can watch them quite clearly, and they actually do what they like, they don't really obey any of our instructions. If we were to, for instance, sit here for an hour or so, and we would say to the feeling, now look, I don't, really don't like unpleasant feelings. Please be pleasant. Any result? Anybody can do it? All one can do is take one's mind off it. That's all one can do. But one has absolutely no jurisdiction over this feeling. If it wants to be unpleasant, it's going to be unpleasant. It's not going to become pleasant because we don't like unpleasant feelings. Investigate. Find out for yourself whether we really own any of that stuff. And as we, the mind has the ability to become really concentrated because of the jhanas, and has that, because the jhanas are an incentive to be concentrated. They are an incentive far more than sitting there with the mind going all over the place or waffling about and trying to just be comfortable. It has an incentive to be concentrated. And with that in concentrated mind, it is, much easier, of course, to have that realization on this step where we can see that there's nobody there that's doing all that. And then as we see the dissolution of it all, as each me which arises, which is a mind construct, falls apart, we don't have the fear of that, but we see the danger. We see the danger of staying like this of remaining in this condition. And as we see the danger, the urgency arises, the urgency to practice now, not tomorrow, not next week, next year, next life, now, to really practice. So that on this pathway we come to absolute truth where then nothing can touch us anymore because we have given up being touched. We have given up the one who is touched. Now that's another topic. But I think I will, at this point, also refer to the eighth jhana, which is the last one of the jhanas. To make this uh, progression complete. Now the eighth jhana does not bring insight. The insight really stops with the seventh. And again, the Buddha only gave it a name. 
He called it the eighth jhana, neither perception nor non-perception. Finished. Finished of explanation. That's it. So one has to actually experience that in order to have an idea what it means to have neither perception nor non-perception. But I'll explain it to you in the best possible way so that you get an idea of what it is. Now again, it's cause and effect. Having in the seventh jhana become aware and imbued with the fact that there is absolutely nothing that can be attached to, that can be experienced. It's all quite empty of anything that has any significance. At that moment, the mind knows, I don't really have to get myself involved. Why am I getting involved with everything? What is there to get involved in? It's all moving. There's nothing there of any significance. And not wanting to be involved even with experiencing that. Because that has been experienced to its fullest, so the mind has the ability now to take a rest. Which doesn't mean falling asleep, because that's not taking a rest. That's only for the body. At that time, the mind has, as its focus of attention, being at rest. And it is different from the stillness of the force jhana, because the stillness of the force jhana is experienced as something. There is something there, stillness. Whereas in the In the eighth jhana, there is the mind at rest, which does, it's not asleep, but it's also not sharply knowing. So it's neither knowing nor not knowing. It's awake and it is aware, but it's only aware of being at rest. So this particular jhana is the greatest energy producer for the mind, even more than the fourth one. And it is impossible to say any more about it because nothing happens. So one can't say something about nothing. It's hard enough to say something about the seventh jhana, which is also nothing, but the eighth one, there is nothing to be said about that. It's a total rest. And because the mind at that time gets this total rest, it has far more energy, muscle, clarity, and buoyancy than the ordinary mind. It's an extraordinary mind. A mind that can do eight jhanas is extraordinary. Connected to that is something that I'll just mention in passing, because it is not really important, the mind of the jhana meditator is also able to have um, potential for what we call maybe feats which are super, super normal. But 
the Buddha warned again and again against using those so-called powers until full enlightenment because it is an expenditure of energy which should be used for only one thing, mental energy for only one thing should be used for enlightenment and mental energy is one also of the seven factors of enlightenment one needs every little bit of it and it is a misconception that doing nothing with one's mind is going to get one there that doesn't mean nothing that the experience of nothing means that we have worked very hard to get there this misconception of doing nothing with the mind is um, not as prevalent anymore as it was in the 60s and 70s but it's still wandering around in some people's heads doing nothing just doing nothing at all well nobody ever got to any jhana by doing nothing one has to have at least a certain direction and then the next thing that one needs is a certain discipline because these states of meditation are not lucky accidents they are the capacity of the mind the mind is capable of them all minds are capable but if they are a lucky accident then of course they do not bring us the fruits that we could get from them they only remain uh, something that we would hanker after we would want it back and that is also a very dangerous undertaking because we'd never get them it means that we've chucked out the rest of the stuff it's got to be one-pointed concentration and wherever that leads us it leads all minds in the same direction this is the pathway of the mind doesn't matter what tradition it doesn't matter what name is given it doesn't matter what religion it doesn't matter what teaching that's where all minds go that are concentrated <coughs> it happens to be called the meditative absorptions in this tradition in Pali the jhanas it's called sometimes different things in different traditions it's always the same experience it is explained differently because of terminology but if one knows what one is doing one can look through the terminology and be aware of what is being said and what is meant unfortunately it's not very exactly described by the Buddha and therefore there is a great deal of confusion totally unnecessary if one is doing it whatever one has done one knows one has bitten into the mango in order to get the taste of the mango and this is here the same thing if one has done it one knows them as you can see number five six and seven are intrinsically bound up with the inside path they're called the pasana jhanas and that word too is being bandied about in some tradition and not properly explained but they are quite clearly inside jhanas inside absorptions because the mind cannot help but get the inside it just can't 
have anything else. It cannot sit there and experience nothing in infinity and not know afterwards that there is nothing in infinity. It's impossible. So it's not even that we have to direct the mind after the jhana to the inside. It comes spontaneously. But again, and I've said it before, but I like to repeat it, any jhana is a very good beginning for the inside path. In other words, if you're able to do any of the jhanas, afterwards is the time for inquiry, is the time for insight. By the same token, if you don't do any of the jhanas, get the calm meditation going first, as calm as you can be, whatever it is, and then look at insight. With the one exception, which I have already mentioned, if the mind is totally restless because it's thinking of dozens of things it ought to be doing and isn't doing because it's stuck here in this place, at that time, when the mind is that restless, go to insight immediately. One of the great teachers, Tanajan Mahabur, has said, little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm, and a little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight. They work hand in hand. They are totally intermeshed. Yet, we have to know their different aspects. Because if we don't know the different aspects, we cannot use them to their fullest. And anything that is understood experience is that what we can use to the fullest. And understood experience brings wisdom. And wisdom is the same as insight. We sometimes call that in English wisdom insight. Because in Pali we have two words for it. Panya is wisdom, Vipassana is insight. So sometimes we just say wisdom insight in order to make it quite clear what is meant. Because insight is wisdom, but it only arises out of the understood experience. So that's why not only are the jhanas so important as experience, and they are of course, and I'm sure that that has come through now quite clearly, but it's not the only thing that's important. The other thing which is important is to look at these four parts of mind and experience them without the preconceived notion that that's me doing it. Just let that go for a moment. Experience them objectively. A totally um, standing apart from it. Just watching it. Because then you have possibly an understood experience as you can see them if it comes to this point of knowledge and vision of things as they really are as they are now that's the one part of it and the other part of this step of insight is that falling apart and that falling apart is of course part of impermanence but when that falling apart the dissolution is seen uh, singly then that arising isn't seen. And that's a very interesting um, happening because without understanding it, again there is that possibility of fear. Everything that one has, put one's whole attention on until now in this life, everything that one has put all value on, Everything that one has been striving for, trying to achieve, trying to become, it's all 
falling apart. And then the mind says, uh-uh, I don't want any part of that one. I've been trying for 50 years or 40 years or 30 years to make something of myself and now it's all falling apart. But that's the wrong reaction because that's not seeing things as they really are. The right reaction is, isn't it wonderful, it's all falling apart, so what am I trying so hard for? But before coming to that conclusion, what am I trying so hard for, one has to have seen it and actually experienced it. Because only then, having seen it and having experienced it, is that not trying so hard to be somebody substituted by trying equally hard to be totally liberated. So it's not just lay back and saying, oh, I'll never do anything again because everybody else will have to, to do something. So the fear which can arise without, without the jhanas is actually ill-founded, but very common, and therefore needs to be discussed. And when it has been eliminated, we can f- carry on. If it isn't eliminated, we get stuck right there and don't want to carry on. So as we see it as something which is a relief and not which is a danger, we can then see quite clearly the danger of what could happen to us. Everything that the world strives for, everything that seems to have such value in the world, is all seen differently. It's all seen as actions which are done for results which don't count. But that doesn't mean one can't do the action. But without the results. The results, whether they come or not, they make absolutely no difference. But the action can be done. You see, if you take this to any length, this understanding of dissolution, what am I sitting here for telling you all this? It's all nothing, isn't it? But that's not so. The action is done for action's sake. That's all. No results. And so it goes with everything, with cleaning toilets, with cooking a meal, with bathing the body, with sitting to meditate. The action for action's sake. Because as long as there is a person, as long there will be action. The Buddha was totally enlightened at age 35 and he taught every single day until age 80 when he died for 45 years. Whether it was, whether he was sick or not, whether he had to walk far or not, whether the weather was good or was the bad weather, it didn't make any difference. He taught every single day someone. And if there was not a big crowd, he taught one person. So action for action's sake. And this is something that has to have significance in one's life because only then do we realize that most of the time we're doing action for results' sake. And when we want results, there's always stress and strain. So the insignificance of all that we put value on releases us and relieves us from that stress and strain of having actually a result and achieving something, but it doesn't relieve and relieve us from doing something. 
Not doing anything is not the answer. But trying to get something out of what we're doing, that's the answer, not trying to get something out of it. So when we get to that point of seeing the danger in this uh, existence, at the same time we see the danger in all existence. It doesn't just have to be the person. Well, we can watch an ant. That's dangerous, isn't it? We can step on it any time. A bird. We can watch a tree. And then we can make up ideas what other realms are like, if we like. The danger in existence is seen quite clearly because, in essence, it all falls apart. And then, when we have that urgency to practice, the desire for being free of all that becomes the one strong desire. And while desire is not without its dukkha, it's certainly a better desire than any other desire we can think of. And it is the desire to get rid of desire. And it only, of course, lasts as long as liberation has not come through. Now, about liberation, I will talk about some of that in the ensuing talks. But again, I will say this verse in order to pave the way so that there aren't too many misunderstandings. I'm sure there'll be some. The Buddha said, there is suffering, but no sufferer. There is the action, but no doer. There is the path, but no one to enter. There is Nibbana, but no one to attain it. Which doesn't mean one can't attain Nibbana. So I think that might be enough for this talk. You can ask some questions if you like. So, all right, I hope you haven't forgotten it, Marie. The question. No, no, not absolutely necessary. Because what is perfection? Who knows? Are you talking about the fourth one? That's the difficult one, isn't it? The fourth one. No, not necessary. Actually, some people go from the third to the fifth, which I don't ad advise at all. Uh, no, it's not necessary. No, I know that goes a bit far. I wouldn't advise that either. Uh, perfection is uh, something, you know, it's difficult to say what is perfection. But the fourth one is perfected when one is actually sort of so deep, um, deep down in this well that uh, there is no sound, nothing. But if you're halfway down the well, there's still sound and you can still go to the fifth. But I wouldn't just touch upon it. That's not a good idea. It's better to have at least the most possible uh, way of doing it. And, uh, you know, give oneself to it for some time. And then if it doesn't work at all and the next one does work, that's all right too. And then the way to do it is to go to the next one and go back. And that might work better sometimes. Yes? Okay. Um, 
Yeah. How long will it take to get there? Is that what you're saying? Who knows? <laughs> Some people seem to have an enormous affinity for jhanas and they do it all in, in one course. And other people sit for what? What was it, Daniel? Twenty years? <laughs> and then finally it happens. <laughs> Who knows? It depends on the one's affinity and it depends on the... Uh, yeah, how much, uh, well, it should be effortless effort at that time, actually, but how much uh, the mind can disassociate from everything else. No, there's no way of telling that. Hmm? And doing what in others? of others. Yeah, that's a bodhisattva idea. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of thing that we explain quite differently. Anyway, the desire to be liberated. Go on. No, no. no. Not at all. The base of nothingness is not a, uh, an experience it's not an enlightenment experience at all. It's, a, uh, it's an experience which shows you what's possible, but you haven't done it yet. You're just only seeing what's possible. So you're just, uh, the, uh, the, the thing that comes back as the concentration is finished, which is your um, uh, cause, which is your condition. The concentration is your condition. So there's no um, uh, reason not to. I mean, the condition is finished, the concentration is finished, and that's it. And there you are again. Besides, the, the mind goes probably to the eighth then. Because it, it has realized that there's really nothing to be, nothing of importance that needs to be looked at, so why look at anything? Just take a rest. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I... <laughs> well, the Buddha did never mention that sort of thing because the Buddha became enlightened, didn't he? And if he didn't, we wouldn't have his teaching. He became enlightened under the Bodhi tree in what today is Bodh Gaya and uh, made his enlightenment statement of the Four Noble Truths and then he tried to help as many people as possible. Okay, so that was the Buddha. Um, the bodhisattva ideal, uh, I'll explain it to you from the standpoint of um, the um, understanding that we have of that. Um, the way it's presented, uh, you can't get or you shouldn't get enlightened until everybody else is enlightened, has been debated by many scholars what it really means because it doesn't make sense in the light of the Buddha's teaching. Um, I don't agree with what the scholars have come up with. Uh, one of the things that they've come up with is that all the different beings that are being enlightened, they're all sitting inside of you. Your feelings, and you know, like I said, we have so many millions of reactions and that's what you're liberating. I don't agree with that at all. No, it's a totally different story that uh, I, um, 
uh, see in that, namely the enlightenment consciousness that arises with an enlightened person does not disappear and that enlightenment consciousness is of the greatest help to people who have the sensitivity, the openness and the ability to connect to it. And if that is not available, that enlightenment consciousness, and the Buddha said it will not be for some time after 5,000 years of the death, um, enlightenment may become quite impossible. So the person who becomes enlightened is a, of the, the most immense help to humanity. And the word bodhisattva in our tradition is um, actually used as a person on the way to enlightenment. The Buddha was a bodhisattva until he became enlightened. Bodhi means enlightenment and sattva is truth, um, purity. So that other uh, sentence isn't really very clear, is it? It sounds good if you don't investigate it, you know. One is so compassionate, but uh, it only sounds good if you don't really investigate it. When you investigate it, it becomes quite clear that the enlightenment consciousness is the best thing one can do for humanity. Yes. <laughs> it depends if you do something good or bad. Sure, into your past habits. Well, I mean, if they're that lousy, you wouldn't have got to the seventh jhana. The one before has dissolved. And now this one's dissolving, and again dissolving. And we see the dissolution on a, on a, quite a, on a level which is quite understandable. Because it makes not only does it refer to the experience in the seventh jhana, but makes perfect sense. And as we see this dissolution happening, in the case if it works the way I've explained it, there's no fear. It's enormous relief. If this me is constantly falling apart, so what am I so worried about? That the me is not going to get what it wants? Well, that's going to fall apart too. So why am I worried about anything? It's all falling apart. Every feeling, every naming, every perception, perceiving it, every reaction. And then we have the understanding of, in addition to the experience of the seventh jhana, we also have the understanding of that nothingness. Because the nothingness is also, can be quite correctly be explained as no significance. And that is the door through which one can go to the to liberation when one takes impermanence as one's um, topic of investigation. It's called the signless liberation. No signs everywhere. Nothing. Nothing there. 
But I want you to understand quite clearly, and I hope you will, that the experience of the seventh jhana is not signless liberation. It's only the indication that this can be done. It's still got to be done. The jhanas are not liberation. The jhanas are all the signposts. And with the signposts, the third dimension of our mental ability. So with those at our command, the liberation becomes a much more possible step. So the, the, the non-significance, the insignificance, nothing significant, refers actually to this possibility of signless liberation, which means impermanence. It doesn't matter which one of those three one really takes in hand. They all lead eventually, hopefully, to liberation. That's where they're supposed to lead to anyway. Our other matter of inquiry, which I mentioned last night, was the fact that one sees, after having overcome the fear, which in this case wouldn't arise, one sees danger everywhere. Now, obviously, the minute we put something important into this vast universe, that important thing will keep us bound. We're stuck to it. And all of a sudden, we no longer have the freedom of the recognition of the vastness which doesn't contain anything, but we now have the fetter again of being attached. Now that's one danger, which is quite clearly seen through that experience of the seventh jhana. The other dangers are more on the level of our mental abilities, the danger of making bad karma, the danger of falling into temptation through the senses. And all these dangers, which are seen as taking one off the path, become far more dangerous if one has experienced these higher jhanas, because the experience makes the mind light, buoyant, totally removed from these worries and problems which still exist in the world and still exist in one's life, but they do not have significance. So having had the experience of being removed, the danger of being back in it is much more apparent. So the danger is the next step on the inside. The um, Seeing the three characteristics, one of the three, and in this case we're looking at impermanence more than at anything else, because the nothingness which we experience in the seventh jhana also can at times, and it has those two possibilities, at times have an effect of the experience of constant movement within that nothingness, which is just as valid an experience as the non-movement. 
constant movement within that nothingness because everything in the universe is constantly moving. So this particular aspect of the steps of practice mostly goes to the impermanence. So when we have had this experience, it will be much easier again to arouse the recognition of impermanence all the time. What I'm calling speaking the Dhamma language to oneself all the time. Impermanence is everywhere and not just when something dies or someone dies and not just when we put our mind on it. We are, every one of us, are proclaiming impermanence. We are impermanence. We don't have to just take a good look and eventually become aware of maybe a few gray hair or a fallen out tooth, nothing like it. We are impermanence because everything is constantly falling apart. So having seen within the seventh jhana also this constant movement, the impermanence becomes so much clearer that the mind is not so likely to forget and therefore not so likely to cling to that which it thinks it's going to make it happy, but which is just as impermanent as everything else. So here, impermanence takes on a different aspect. It's not no longer that we lose what we've got, or that we get older, or that we eventually die. That's still on the level of our mental perception. It takes on the aspect of constant movement everywhere because we've seen that in the seventh jhana. Constant movement, and we can no longer ignore impermanence. It's all moving. And because of that, the depths of the insight into impermanence becomes far more profound. It no longer refers to those things that we know that are impermanent. One a sweater has holes in it, so we throw it away. Uh, um, a leaf has fallen down because it's died, nothing like that. Everything has that movement in it. And having seen it in the infinity of all that exists, we can't deny it. And the mind doesn't want to deny it. It has no intention of denying it. It only denies as long as it's stuck to something else. Here, it had to be unstuck in order to get there. So having got there, it doesn't deny anything. It has had its own personal experience of it. It was totally calm, buoyant, at ease. So what is there to deny? Just that is the way it is. In fact, again, because of that constant movement, which refers to the word impermanence, but has this far more profound depth to it, because of that, relief is again experienced. We don't have to make anything solid. We don't have to make it perfect. We don't have to make it so that other generations can follow it. We don't have to make anything of any nature other than what it is already. Because everything is as it is anyway. And that's why this step, as I said yesterday, 
is called, in its totality, the step of insight, is called the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. And that can be on any level. It can be on the mental level of understanding, but when it comes to this level of experiential understanding, it of course has a far greater impact. So knowledge and vision of things as they really are contains the whole of the insight that we gain at this time, which has started out with mind and body being two, everything that arises has to cease, that everything that exists has a cause, cause and effect, that the that we choose impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or the uh, substancelessness as our topic of inquiry, and we don't have to retain one, we can change it also at another time, take the other topic. And following on from that, that our four components of mind are seen in their reality as having no owner, just coming and going. Now if we get to that point where we at least understand that it has no owner, because we can watch them quite clearly and they actually do what they like, they don't really obey any of our instructions. If we were to, for instance, sit here for an hour or so and we would say to the feeling, now look, I don't, really don't like unpleasant feelings. Please be pleasant. Any result? Anybody can do it? All one can do is take one's mind off it. That's all one can do. But one has absolutely no jurisdiction over this feeling. If it wants to be unpleasant, it's going to be unpleasant. It's not going to become pleasant because we don't like unpleasant feelings. Investigate. Find out for yourself whether we really own any of that stuff. And as we, the mind has the ability to become really concentrated because of the jhanas, and has that, because the jhanas are an incentive to be concentrated. They are an incentive far more than sitting there with the mind going all over the place or waffling about and trying to just be comfortable. It has an incentive to be concentrated. And with that in concentrated mind, it is, much easier, of course, to have that realization on this step where we can see that there's nobody there that's doing all that. And then as we see the dissolution of it all, as each me which arises, which is a mind construct, falls apart, we don't have the fear of that, but we see the danger. We see the danger of staying like this of remaining in this condition. And as we see the danger, the urgency arises, the urgency to practice now, not tomorrow, not next week, next year, next life, now, to really practice. So that on this pathway we come to absolute truth where then nothing can touch us anymore because we have given up being touched. We have given up the one who is touched. Now that's another topic, but I think I will at this point also refer to the eighth jhana, which is the last one of the jhanas.
to make this uh, progression complete. Now the eighth jhana does not bring insight. The insight really stops with the seventh. And again the Buddha only gave it a name. He called it the eighth jhana, neither perception nor non-perception. Finished. Finished of explanation. That's it. So one has to actually experience that in order to have an idea what it means to have neither perception nor non-perception. But I'll explain it to you in the best possible way so that you get an idea of what it is. Now again, it's cause and effect. Having in the seventh jhana become aware and imbued with the fact that there is absolutely nothing that can be attached to, that can be experienced. It's all quite empty of anything that has any significance. At that moment, the mind knows, I don't really have to get myself involved. Why am I getting involved with everything? What is there to get involved in? It's all moving. There's nothing there of any significance. And not wanting to be involved even with experiencing that. Because that has been experienced to its fullest. So the mind has the ability now to take a rest. Which doesn't mean falling asleep. Because that's not taking a rest. That's only for the body. At that time, the mind has, as its focus of attention, being at rest. And it is different from the stillness of the fourth jhana, because the stillness of the fourth jhana is experienced as something. There is something there, stillness. Whereas in the, in the eighth jhana, there is the mind at rest, which does, it's not asleep, but it's also not sharply knowing. So it's neither knowing nor not knowing. It's awake and it is aware, but it's only aware of being at rest. So this particular jhana is the greatest energy producer for the mind even more than the fourth one. And it is impossible to say any more about it because nothing happens. So one can't say something about nothing. It's hard enough to say something about the seventh jhana, which is also nothing, but the eighth one, there is nothing to be said about that. It's a total rest. And because the mind at that time gets this total rest, it has far more energy, muscle, clarity, and buoyancy than the ordinary mind. It's an extraordinary mind. A mind that can do eight jhanas is extraordinary. Connected to that is something that I'll just mention in passing, because it is not really important, the mind of the jhana meditator is also able to have um, 
potential for what we call maybe feats which are super supernormal. But the Buddha won't again and again against using those so-called powers until full enlightenment because it is an expenditure of energy which should be used for only one thing, mental energy, for only one thing, should be used for enlightenment. And mental energy is one also of the seven factors of enlightenment. One needs every little bit of it. And it is a misconception that doing nothing with one's mind is going to get one there. That doesn't mean nothing. That the experience of nothing means that we have worked very hard to get there. This misconception of doing nothing with the mind is um, not as prevalent anymore as it was in the 60s and 70s. But it's still wandering around in some people's heads. Doing nothing. Just doing nothing at all. Well, nobody ever got to any jhana by doing nothing. One has to have at least a certain direction. And then the next thing that one needs is a certain discipline. Because these states of meditation are not lucky accidents. They are the capacity of the mind. The mind is capable of them. All minds are capable. But if they are a lucky accident, then, of course, they do not bring us the fruits that we could get from them. They only remain uh, something that we would hanker after. We would want it back. And that is also a very dangerous undertaking because we'd never get them. If we want